Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Gaukroger. He is Emeritus Professor of History of Philosophy and History of Science at the University of Sydney. And today we're going to talk about his new book, The, Failure, the Failures of Philosophy, a Historical Essay. So Dr. Gaukroger, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Okay, so I, I mean, uh, by the way, before we start, let me just say that I found the book very interesting. So, I mean, I read quite a bit of philosophy and the idea of the failure, the failures of philosophy really caught me. So, <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean, but just to make things clear here from the very start, uh, when you want to tackle the failures of philosophy in the book, what kind of failures are you really aiming at? Is it uh, failures in the way philosophy in general works, the way we, it tackles questions, or is it the failures of specific schools of thought, specific theories? What is it exactly? Well, the standard view is that you couldn't have failures of philosophy as such. You could only have philosophy failures of particular philosophical schools or views or theories. So the book sets out to challenge that. Um, and it does that by looking at a number of different chronologically distinct self-conceptions of philosophy. So for the purposes of the book, I'm saying there isn't just one philosophy. There are, there are different um, types of philosophy, so to speak, historically speaking, which have very definite aims, uh, such as the good life in ancient philosophy and, and um, trying to present a theory of everything in the case of 19th century philosophy and later. And that by, by their own criteria, these projects fail, and they not only fail, but the questions that they raise are so important that something else takes over from philosophy, something else that we all recognize isn't philosophy, takes over from philosophy. And in that sense, the failure of philosophy is, is kind of magnified, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And what can we learn, particularly speaking, what can philosophers learn by studying the ways philosophy failed or fails even nowadays? Well, the first thing they can learn is that the history of philosophy is not just some kind of continuous story that leads to the present. There's not, there's not some, um, there, uh, at least for the kind of purposes that I'm interested in, there's not some common story. There's a number of different things that have been concerned with different problems, that have had different kinds of success, that have failed in different ways, um, and I want to bring out the distinctiveness um, of those. Now, of course, one can go back to earlier periods and find things that one finds interesting or stimulating, but that doesn't mean there's a genuine continuity between one's own problems and those of the um, past. So the first thing I want to, if you like, uh, bring to light is that um, philosophy does not have a continuous history. And that, I think, is as much of a shock to many philosophers as the idea that um, philosophy, it's possible for, for philosophy itself to actually fail, not just particular theories, but philosophy itself 
to fail. But philosophy itself here means the big philosophical projects of which there are three or four throughout the history of the discipline. Yes, because I mean, even when I personally studied philosophy in school, I mean, the idea that I guess me and most people get is that philosophy started with the Greeks and they set basically the most important questions out there to explore and then across history what people did uh, was basically uh, tackle those same questions in different ways with different schools of thoughts with different methods etc for example you you even get quotes like uh, i can't remember exactly you said this but someone said that uh, the history of philosophy was just footnotes on Plato. So basically, Plato supposedly had set up all the, the important questions out there and people were just elaborating on them or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a very superficial reading of philosophy. Now, if you're teaching people who've done no philosophy before uh, in a first year course, then that's relatively harmless. You kind of homogenize the discipline, you kind of give it some kind of identity across time, and you give it some kind of dignity, so to speak, by saying, you know, it's really, it's really the most ancient intellectual discipline uh, or something like that. So fine at that level. But if you want to probe a bit, and if you want to raise more substantive questions about philosophy, if you want to raise historiographical questions about, about, about whether, whether the philosophical enterprise has changed radically, what kinds of problems it's faced, whether it's faced very specific problems or whether it just always faces the same problem. If you want to do that, then you then Ancient philosophy looks very different from other kinds of philosophy. Obviously, one can go back and find things in Plato, for example, and say, yes, well, this is like, you know, is knowledge justified true belief? Well, Plato, you know, asked that. I'm not sure he does, actually, but let's say Plato asked that and we ask that still. You can do that. Yeah. And at one level, that's fine. But if but a more probing attitude to philosophy um, means that you've got to go much, you've got to go much deeper and, and look in a contextualized way at just what people were asking, why they were asking those questions, and if you like, what the non-philosophical competition was. Because um, we think of the non-philosophical competition as either being religion or science, but actually it's much more complicated than that when you, when you kind of look at the thing in a bit more detail. Yes, and we'll get into those questions later about the relationship between philosophy, science and perhaps religion as well. But by studying the failures of philosophy, even if there's this discontinuity of philosophy across history or within philosophy across history, can these failures tell us anything about what philosophy is and what it is for? Yes, but not in not in the sense in which you mean it. It can tell us that philosophy is not some single thing. Um, there are techniques that might go across the history of these disciplines, but philosophy is not, put it this way, it isn't a straightforward kind of discourse that deals, for example, through conceptual analysis by contrast with, with by contrast with empirical 
inquiry um, that uh, doesn't rely on dogma, that relies on critical argument and the rest of it. There's not, that's, that's fine, but again, it's too superficial if you want to really um, probe and press philosophy a little bit more. So what it can, what it can tell us is, is that um, this is, history, philosophy is a problematic discourse in its history. It's not straightforward. I mean, particularly, it's not teleological. It doesn't lead to the present. Now, I know quite a few philosophers still assume that all philosophy leads to the to the to the present most historians of philosophy wouldn't wouldn't accept that and a lot and a lot of other philosophers would think that that was a very naive view but trying to formulate what it actually what it's what its motor is what it does do that's the hard bit and that's really what i've tried to do right can we say, or is it possible to say that there's been progress in philosophy in the sense that, for example, just assuming, I don't know if this is an objective you have as a philosopher or not, but assuming that the, one of the objectives of philosophy would be to arrive at or get closer to the truth. Do you think that in that way we can talk about progress in philosophy or not? Um. Truths, truths are rather problematic notions, so I wouldn't put it in terms of truth. I'd put it in terms of having better, deeper, better supported accounts of things. And in that sense, within particular programs, yes, of course, you can. So within logic, for example, clearly. But there's not, talking in terms of truth, I think it makes... Um, adds an extra element that doesn't that uh, doesn't help in describing what this progress consists in. I don't think there's progress from antiquity to the modern era, but I do think that within particular periods, there's progress and there's also regress, of course. And um, historians of philosophy are probably the best people to identify the latter. Right, so uh, let's walk then through some of the history of philosophy. Can we say exactly when philosophy started? Um, so long as you don't expect a straightforward answer, yes. <laughs> because, I, I mean, I'd say philosophy starts with Plato. Um, there are, now, in the context of Plato's thought, and particularly later on that of his pupil Aristotle, there are, there are um, earlier figures who've made certain moves that in the context of Plato and Aristotle make sense as philosophical moves. But I think in their own right, they, um, they, they, they don't have much standing in their own right. So if you take the kind of genuine pre-Socratics, and I wouldn't, for various reasons, I wouldn't include Thales here, but if you take uh, Anaximander and Parmenides and maybe Heraclitus, for example, if there'd been no Plato or Aristotle to follow up, we wouldn't have a philosophical tradition. We wouldn't have anything that we could recognize as a philosophical tradition. But once these are incorporated into uh, and made sense of in, in terms of the larger project of Plato and then Aristotle, then we've got philosophy. So it starts with Plato because you don't have anything recognizably philosophical before that, except that Plato makes, Plato and Aristotle, make certain 
earlier developments philosophical that in their own right you couldn't call them philosophical i don't think mm -hmm. it's interesting that you say that it starts with plato and then you mentioned the pre-socratics a little bit so where do you position socrates because of course we don't use uh, we usually do not say pre-platonics but pre-socratics yes. right yeah we do um we just don't know enough about Socrates and what, what on earth he's doing. We get different accounts in Plato and in the other authors. Um, some people treat him as a sophist, which is, which is fine. The sophists are part of the philosophical tradition as well. Um, it's not always clear what he's up to. Um, for Plato, the, the, um, the point of kind of Socratic questioning is to get to a particular goal, namely the good life. It's not clear that that's what Socrates was doing. I mean, Plato presents him as something like that at times, but we just don't know enough about Socrates. And I think Socrates, if there'd been, if it had just been Socrates in a Socratic tradition, I think you'd have a very different kind of um, a very different kind of history, a very different cultural history. I mean, think of all those later writers who identified Socrates and Jesus as very similar kinds of characters, um, raising the same kind of moral questions, probing and the rest of it. I can see without Plato and Aristotle, that's a tradition that Socrates could even, could, could have been placed in. And it's by our standards, that's not a philosophical tradition. Mm -hmm. So Plato is the key. Right. But, but if you say that philosophy starts with Plato, then in the history of philosophy, what is the role played by the pre-Socratics? Because, I mean, usually they are mentioned in the history of philosophy. They are now. That starts with Hegel. It's not prior, to, as, as I understand it, prior to Hegel, no one talks about the pre-Socratics as part of okay. a... Uh, no one systematically includes them in the picture. I mean, people like Heraclitus might be mentioned, but they're not included. So, and this is something I haven't looked at in detail. The question here is, when and under what conditions were the pre-Socratics included in the philosophical canon? And why were they included? And I think one has to look at very particular historical circumstances. Now, it's true that subsequently, um, that's all been forgotten and they're just treated as part of the canon. But that's kind of just, um, that's really just for pedagogic purposes, I think, uh, initially. Um, since then, the serious scholarship that tries to work out what the contribution of the pre-Socratics is, but always on the assumption that this is already philosophy. And that's an assumption I think is, is questionable and has to be thought about, has to be opened up to question. Mm -hmm. So, when looking at the very origins of philosophy with the Greeks, whatever, I mean, either the pre-Socratics or Plato or whatever, I mean, is it that certain domains of philosophy or sub-disciplines uh, appeared at different times, like, for example, metaphysics, aesthetics, ethics, epistemology, was it something that appeared one after the other over time, or is that not the best way of thinking about it? Um, well, 
they may have appeared over time in some cases, or they may have appeared simultaneously because the connections between them change. Mm. So in someone like Aristotle, for example, logic is not uh, is really not the kind of thing that we are that we are that the aims of logic are quite different from the aims of logic from Frege onwards from the 19th 20th century it's all about explanation it's not about kind of um i mean there's there's a concern with preserving truth in inference and that's that's um that's aristotle's um contribution in modern terms but aristotle is interested in much more than that from logic he wants logic to produce genuine explanatory conclusions and that's not something that modern logicians think is possible and it wasn't possible for aristotle either but for aristotle and for the stoics the whole tradition of ancient logic went beyond just truth truth preservation it went to big substantive explanatory questions so the whole context within which he pursued this study means it's got a different kind of connection with ethics with, with sorry with with uh, epistemology and metaphysics than has subsequently been been the case and that i think is that that i think is a very important aspect of a contextual understanding of what ancient philosophers are doing mm -hmm. Do you think that there's um, a relationship between these different domains? For example, is there a relationship between metaphysics and epistemology or epistemology and ethics? I mean, do we need to have the questions in a particular domain settled? Like, for example, what exists or what can we know about the world to know how we should conduct ourselves in the world or something like that? Well, historically, metaphysics changed character very radically. There were various different and conflicting expectations put on metaphysics in the Middle Ages. Yeah. By the time you go to Descartes, it's a highly epistemologized metaphysics. It's about it's about what it's not about what there is. It's about how you can know what there is, what kind of resources, knowledge resources you can um, depend on. Um, I think by the 18th century, um, particularly with, in, the, in the tradition of Locke, uh, the two get separated to some extent and epistemology gets pursued somewhat independently of metaphysics. There's a, I mean, there's a revival of metaphysics of sorts in German idealism. There's a very different kind of revival with uh, Bertrand Russell uh, and British analytic philosophy they have different relationships and metaphysics has been asked to solve very different kinds of questions. Now, there's one level, I should say that there is, there is one level at which, yeah, it's all metaphysics. That's fine for some purposes. That is not fine for all purposes. And for more, and for more, um, um, and if one's going to probe more deeply or have, or, uh, have a greater historical sense as to what's going on. These enterprises may have something in common, but they have so much that's not in common that um, it's very misleading to treat them as part of the same exercise. Right. But, but then let me ask you just to take a step back. Uh, in what ways were Christ, Christian theologians influenced by ancient philosophy? And I mean, how would you look at the role that 
they played in the history of philosophy? Uh, I think it's a crucial role. It's, um, I mean, for one thing, remember that Aristotle, after his death, Aristotelianism was very marginal in the Greek and Hellenistic world. I mean, Plato, people were Platonists, they were Stoics, they were Epicureans, um, but Aristotle was completely marginal. Um, Aristotle only really becomes a significant figure with, uh, in the 13th century, maybe a little bit of it, but certainly in the 13th century with the scholastics, who see him as providing a solution, who see him as providing the resources to deal with what are effectively theological problems, the Trinity, transubstantiation. He's got a theory of substance uh, that uh, fits the program uh, very well. And that program is really a theological program. It's designed to, to convert non-Christians and it's designed to deal with heretics. So it's a, it's a way of formulating orthodoxy. And Aristotelianism, except on one issue, the immortality of the soul, did that very effectively. Prior to that, Platonism or Neoplatonism is absolutely crucial in formulating Christian theology uh, from, the, from the early centuries uh, onwards, uh, particularly in someone like Augustine. He just translates Platonism into Christian terms. So the link between um, Christianity and uh, metaphysics is is uh, an, an ancient metaphysics is is very uh, is very tight, and I might also add that of course Aristotelianism doesn't come from nowhere into the into the 13th century Christian tradition. It comes through the Arabic it comes through the Arabic philosophers, particularly in the 12th century Averroes. So you have a very sophisticated uh, Aristotelian philosophy that then gets that then gets taken over by uh, Christian theologians, though they don't always understand where it's coming from, and and it provides the same kind of support for theological doctrines as it did for the uh, for the Arabic philosophers. Mm -hmm. And is there a particular point in history where the influence of Aristotle and Plato uh, goes away in any way? It goes away in the by the 17th century, more or less, uh, sorry, Platonism goes away, starts going away in the 17th century. There are Platonists of sorts in England. There are people who take Plato seriously. Uh, humanists still going into the 17th century. But there's a massive decline uh, in the uh, 17th century. Aristotle, similarly, in, in most, certainly in terms of natural philosophy or science, uh, in terms of metaphysics, which by this stage is intimately connected with his natural philosophy of science. Ethics is a bit different because Aristotle's virtue ethics has had has been subsequently revived against consequentialism and Kantianism and things like that on the grounds that it, it, it's, a, it's an ethics that... Um, makes judgment depend on character and intentions and things like that. Um, by contrast with, in the extreme case, consequentialism, utilitarianism, which, 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 um, which, um, which jettisons questions of character. Mm -hmm. What happens... So, per... Yeah. 
uh, what happens particularly in Europe with the arrival of naturalism? I mean, what sorts of changes did it bring with it? Uh, the term naturalism is used in very different ways. Um, in, the, in the 18th century, there's a form of naturalism which is medically based. Basically, the argument there is that philosophers have had metaphysical and epistemological theories about the nature of mind, but they haven't looked at the physiology of the brain or anything like that. They haven't looked at medical symptoms. They've treated the mind in a completely abstract terms, whereas for these medical philosophers, what you need to do is you need to look at the mind in terms of healthy minds, unhealthy minds, and the rest of it, and you need to get a, a larger picture. By the 18th, by, by the 19th century, there's a much more general form of naturalization, which is that the kinds of problems that philosophy has directed itself to, and there, what these people have in mind is German idealism. Um, they, they are, some of them are genuine problems, but philosophy is hopeless. It can't solve any, it can't deal with any of these problems, but they're still, they're still serious problems. So you need some other discipline and that discipline is science. And this is basically a physics, to some extent, physiology based notion of how you deal with the ultimate problems. And the issue, and what one interesting issue there, I think that I tried to bring out is that for Kant and the German and the German idealists, for the first time, philosophy becomes construed as the theory of everything. It had never been thought of in those terms previously, but Kant and the German idealists think it's the theory of everything. When that collapses, uh, scientists, particularly in, in Germany and then in the 20th century more generally, still see the big project as a theory of everything. They still think that's a viable, plausible kind of exercise. Completely wrongly in my view, but they think that's that's something that you should aim at. And they, um, they, um, they think that the only way to do that is science. So what does philosophy do then? Well, basically, it kind of, it, it uh, supports science by, it, amongst other things, trying to develop the theory of the unity of science. After all, if science can, if science is the theory of everything, it can explain everything. What's the role of philosophy? Well, philosophy can show how all the bits are connected and there's unity of science. And one thing I argue in the book and else in much greater detail elsewhere is that this is a completely misguided project. There's no, there is no unity of science. It's never worked. It's never been a plausible aim. And it's often been a great obstacle to scientific understanding. But that's what happens when you have this big project of the theory of everything. Mm -hmm. But do, do you look at philosophy and science as being separate or not? Um, well, you know, my, um, my original work from my PhD onwards was in early modern science as much as anything. And in the 17th century, particularly, it's very difficult to separate um, science and philosophy. Philosophy becomes really natural philosophy and they're very intimately connected. Mm -hmm. And since then, I've been very interested in how, how the relation between the two develops. Uh, they haven't just been separated. They, you know, to some extent, as in 
this unity of science project they've come they've actually come together again as mutually reinforcing disciplines um so i've been very concerned to look at how that's happened and why it's happened and you know what the what the particular moves um are so it it really depends on it really depends on the period it depends on how you think of what what science is doing and what scientific resources you've got and above all it depends on the big question which i've tried to raise as a question i don't have answers the big question what's the point of philosophy what's it supposed to be doing what would you know what would success look like um what is it doing that other that other disciplines don't or can't do um what do you need to know to do philosophy what do you need to study to do philosophy so uh, so you know i don't have any pat answers to those things but i think if philosophers don't ask those questions they might as well go home because this is you know this is a core form of intellectual intellectual inquiry that philosophers traditionally have been concerned with um and if philosophers are now not if you know not all of them but those philosophers who are concerned with narrow technical issues i'm not sure that that's what that, that that's that they're even doing philosophy anymore and they're certainly not thinking in broad terms about what they're doing right but did people traditionally think about philosophy as being separate from other forms of knowledge like for example i'm not sure if religion would be another form of knowledge or not and science because I, for example there were things and methods that people were developing even before the scientific revolution that perhaps would also be considered science but how did how did people think about the relationship between different forms and ways of knowledge um well one answer is the question of priority what what stands what if there seem to be equal reasons for, for pursuing different paths how do you decide if there's an overriding path and obviously religion's pretty important there but then so science becomes very important there as well and indeed in some sense science just takes over a role that it's um that it's uh, had from uh, religion um but there are there are other um there are other things so um uh what I'm there's a case I was looking at recently in the 18th century where 18th century philosophers were worried about progress the progress of knowledge and they were concerned the french philosophers were concerned about the uh, middle ages and why things seemed to go backwards in the middle ages and how they got themselves out of that and um one um one thing that uh and obviously they thought it was science rather than metaphysics or religion that had dragged uh knowledge out of the middle ages but there was also a concern about christian morality and how you formulate it how you defend christian morality against atheists heretics muslims the rest of it and the view was that you need to um that and this was really a humanist view but it was it was adhered to more generally in the 17th century particularly the view was that you need to that christian morality 
by itself is hopeless. Christian thought by itself is hopeless. It needs to be formulated in terms of a Greco-Roman philosophy. It needs to have the resources and the kind of tools that philosophy provides. Now, that's been true of theology earlier, and it, and it remained true in areas like uh, ethics, particularly, and in other areas. And one view was that um, the, the, um, if you didn't pursue these things in philosophical terms, if you didn't pursue these religious concerns in philosophical terms, you'd be stuck like people were in the Middle Ages. It wouldn't be able to defend itself against other religions or anything like that. It would just, it, it, it would just be a dead end. Whereas the view in the 17th and 18th century by religious philosophers was that using the tools of ancient philosophy or maybe more recent philosophy wisely enabled you to give an articulate defense of Christian and other values. So it was it was an integral part of defending a particular kind of mentality. At the same time, of course, there were those who used those tools to undermine Christian morality and other forms of morality. And in that context, philosophy um, became, in terms of priorities, be became the, 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 the thing that could trump other forms of understanding, particularly religion, uh, not science, but particularly religion. Um, so there you have a complex relation between philosophy and, uh, and theology. And it doesn't necessarily go in the way that its kind of promoters had wanted or expected. Um, there's all kinds of contingencies. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, isn't the relationship between philosophy and theology or religion a bit complicated? I mean, isn't it the case that, for example, Christ Christian theologians, many of them were also philosophers and they were doing things like metaphysics, ethics, uh, I mean, arguably even epistemology, they were using logic in their writing. So, I mean, what is really the relationship there? Can, can we say that theologians are also philosophers in a sense? Oh, certainly. But it depends what you... Here's, here's the question that I try and raise of motivation. Why are you dealing with these problems in the first place? And why are you dealing with them philosophically? You're dealing with these problems, so take, you know, Aquinas, for example. Why, what are the basic problems that you're trying to solve using philosophy? They're not philosophical problems. They're theological problems. They're problems about transubstantiation, the Trinity, the personal immortality, and the rest of it. The way in which these have been formulated in Platonist terms don't work. It gets you into all kinds of problems. You can't deal with motions of substance and the rest of it that you need to be able to deal with. So you go to Aristotelianism, and Aristotelianism works really well in most cases. So here you have a successful, and then being someone like Aquinas, with fantastic philosophical sophistication, you kind of formulate your theology in philosophical terms. And I think um, that's, that's how... For, that's how theologians, certainly into the 17th and 18th century, and maybe now, um, 
deal with these things. They use the resources of philosophy, but what they, but the original problems or the problems that these things are directed towards are philosophical problems. And this raises the question of philosophy taking on, philosophy being a resource to deal with problems from outside philosophy itself, moral, political, scientific, religious problems. And what happens when it becomes completely self-referential, when it only deals with its own internally generated problems. And um, I've, I've kind of, I touch on that towards the end of the book, but that's a, that's a, uh, that's just really, that's something just to provoke thought. It's not that I have any answers on that. I mean, I, you know, I have opinions, but I don't have any answers on it. Mm -hmm. So before we get into some more general questions, I would like to ask you specifically about uh, a thing that particularly the Enlightenment philosophers dealt with in the domain of epistemology. So right. the ways they talked about uh, reason, sensibility and things like that. I mean, what was novel about the ways they did epistemology back then, particularly people like Kant and the empiricists and so on. I mean, uh, did they have any new ways of thinking about uh, where knowledge came from, how people acquired knowledge and so on that we don't find in earlier philosophers? Yes, definitely. In lots of cases. Let me just give you one example. Locke. Locke's essay on human understanding, the first book of the um, essay on human understanding, deals with the question of innate ideas. Now, this is a standard epistemological problem in the 17th century, deriving from Descartes. It's there in, it's there in Leibniz, of course. Um, and it, it looks like a classic case of pure conceptual analysis. It's, uh, it's a question of, you know, a, a, a conceptual analysis of logic, of, um, of um, knowledge. Book one of Locke's essay uh, on innate ideas, he doesn't, he discusses, he doesn't discuss philosophical texts. You look at all the references, they're all to travel books. Not travel brochures, but you know, travel reports. Um, and... Um, it's an empirical discipline, and he just sets out the massive variety of conceptions that people have. And that's the argument, that's the most telling argument against innate ideas, because they couldn't possibly be, in a, and he's particularly concerned with moral ones, but across the spectrum, you couldn't possibly have innate ideas given this huge um, variation an almost infinite variation in ideas. Um, and then in that Lockean tradition, and the, really the Lockeans are in France, they're the Enlightenment philosophers rather than in England, in that Lockean tradition, using empirical information as a basis for knowledge is, um, is absolutely crucial. Now, often this is done in terms of rationalism versus empiricism but that's very misleading because it looks like you've got you know one system which says you start from truths of reason another system which says you start from truths of experience but the but in the second case the so-called empiricists are all of them virtually anti-system one of the things that it, 
It isn't just that they say that knowledge must start from sensation. They're also saying just as stridently, you can't be a system builder. This uh, system building is completely out. That's where people go wrong. That's where people went wrong in the Middle Ages. And that's where the likes of Descartes and Cole went wrong as well. That it's um, that systems out, that is not the way to pursue philosophy or understanding. Um, so that's one. And, you know, there are lots of other cases. So um, Bonnet, Charles Bonnet, who people don't really know about these days. I've just translated his essay on uh, on um, at the, uh, at the um, analysis of the faculties of the soul. Bonnet, this is 1650s. He's the, sorry, 1750s. He's the first person to physiologize the soul. His kind of empiricism is that it's all got to be done in terms of uh, the physiology of the um, sensory systems, nervous systems, physiology of the brain. It's not reductionist. It, that's to say he thinks that you can identify a locus of the soul and the rest of it. And he also thinks that um, that all animals have personal identity, for example. It's a very radical kind of view. But it's but no one in the 17th century would have would have would have contemplated anything along those lines. And even though it's quite extreme in the 18th century, it's still an indication of how radical uh, 18th century thinkers are. And Hume, you know, I mean, Hume says, yeah, metaphysics is great. It gives us a tool for thinking more deeply about problems. But if you've got any sense, you must know when to stop, because if you don't stop, you just you just go mad effectively. It doesn't. It's a metaphysics is a dead end, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue it. It means that you should use your judgment to know when it comes when it comes to an end. Again, I don't think anyone in the 17th century could have possibly had a view like that. So it's very, very radical until Kant and then Kant reintroduces metaphysics. I mean, he really goes back to a more 17th century project. Right. Uh, would you say that over time, and particularly more so in more recent times, philosophy has been losing prestige, particularly with the advent of science? Um, it's been losing prestige. And yeah, the advent of science has been very... Um, has been a very important factor. Um, I mean, if you think about it, theology also has been losing prestige, radically, divinity. And um, it's, I'm not sure that the kinds of things that have undermined the prestige of theology or divinity are that different from the, oh, sorry, uh, the, there isn't some overlap between those and the kinds of things that have undermine the prestige of philosophy. So let me give an example. In the 1950s, I think it was, in Britain, there were BBC radio programmes and they had, you know, maybe a bit earlier than 19, maybe 1950s. They had Bertrand Russell as the philosopher. They had Copleston, the history of philosophy, Copleston as the theologian, and they had others. And they had a reasonable audience and people would listen in. And you had, you know, the philosopher speaks and the theologian speaks and you maybe the scientist speaks. And you had three different, not necessarily opposing, but different kinds of approach to the subject matter. And the first two dropped out. 
and now you know you have particularly in the in the television era you don't have philosophers on television you don't have theologians on television in in at least not in peak hour anyway but you do have scientists with big documentaries and the rest of it so maybe there's a connection between the failures of divinity and the failures of philosophy now this doesn't mean that they they have the same standing because they don't um, but there's a kind of it, okay what it means is you've got to take into account various cultural factors it's not just an internally generated thing it's not that philosophy's lost its way therefore it's lost its kind of public standing or divinity's lost its way it's lost its public standing. that may that that may be a factor but there's a far more general cultural thing about what people look to to answer fundamental questions and one thing I've looked at really quite over a long time now is this idea of the persona of the philosopher and the persona of the scientist. That's to say, what standing does one have simply in virtue of being a philosopher? Not, not, what, not what views one might have, uh, but simply in virtue of being a philosopher, what standing does one have? What standing does one have simply in virtue of being a scientist, irrespective of one's views? And the same with a theologian and maybe others. And the, and the persona has changed radically. There was a time, um, 17th and 18th century, where the, the, uh, the, uh, the persona of the philosopher was such that you had you had a voice so to speak simply in virtue of being a philosopher irrespective of your particular doctrines and in some respects um, maybe european philosophy has been a little bit like that in germany in italy and france um, philosophy has a kind of standing quite independently of what the doctrines are it has a kind of standing that um, it hasn't had in anglophone countries so I think the thing there is you've got to be these questions are really complicated and they involve all kinds of cultural issues and philosophers are not competent or trained to deal with those cultural issues. Now, I personally, I'd say, um, wake up philosophers because you've got to those are the kind of things you've got to you get. I mean, my own view is you find a really interesting question that's 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 consequential, um, that hasn't been dealt with properly or that people have mis, misrecognized or something like that. And you ask, what resources do you need to deal with this kind of question? And you know, as someone trained in philosophy, obviously if it, if it doesn't require any philosophical resources, then you, you are not the person to do it. But if it's a really interesting, significant question, it's quite likely that you're gonna have to build up other resources you know, in my kinds of interest, you're going to have to understand a lot more about science, a lot more about social and cultural history, and a lot more about the history of theology. Um, now, you know, if you think that that's not what, that's not my job, I'm a philosopher, then the odds are you're just going to go in, you're just going to carry on with narrow, internally generated problems that no one outside the discipline has got any interest in. Hardly anyone in the discipline has any interest in um, you know you look at readership of articles in top philosophy journals the last figures i saw a bit hard to tell now and they're like you know top articles get five percent 
of Rishi <laughs> I mean, it's it's really sorry. Five five people have read it in today's you know, top journal. It's um, it's it just becomes okay. It's a bit like religion. Philosophers think that philosophy is crucial for universities, and it's a disaster for for universities to get rid of philosophy. And I think that's right. I think it, it is a disaster. But they see, you know, religion departments getting kind of closed down or something like that. And they feel completely immune from that because they feel that they're doing something that's really important. Whereas religion departments, you know, God's a non-referring expression. So it's all kind of fiction or fantasy anyway. So what's the point? But you look at university administrators and they think, in my experience is, particularly scientists, many of them think, well, you know, religion philosophy they're pretty harmless they get bums on seats um but if they stop getting bums on seats then they're um then they're um then we'll close them down they're not they're not doing their job so there's a i think philosophers have a have a very kind of misleading optimistic view about the standing of their of their discipline so what's the answer do something about it <laughs> and i think the only way you can do something about it is by combining the resources of philosophy with other other uh, disciplines so that you can direct your attention to big to big consequential problems and to some extent that's happened in in ethics and maybe a couple of other areas uh, philosophy of life sciences and things but um in the main it, it hasn't but that seems to me to me the the only direction that one has to go in and one should not suffer under any illusions about the general standing of philosophy not just in the popular media but in universities mm -hmm. uh... Are there questions that only philosophy can tackle and answer? Because, I mean, nowadays, for example, you get people, of course, this is a minority position, but you have things like scientism, where people say that basically science can answer any sort of question under the sun. But do you think that there are questions that still only philosophy can answer them? Um, well, there have been periods where only philosophy could answer the questions. And that's where, you know, for example, where science is very underdeveloped, like in classical Greece. Um, and um, certainly scholastic theologians thought there were problems that only philosophy could, could answer, using that as a resource to help. Are there now... Um, There are different schools of philosophy. I mean, in the in the um, in the fields of philosophy, I hardly looked at different modern schools, but that becomes an issue when you ask that that kind of question. Um, so there's a phenomenological tradition that um, certainly thinks that there's a very distinctive way of doing philosophy, and it yields it yields things that other disciplines can't. Uh, um, can't uh, mirror analytic philosophy I don't know it depends how you think of it I mean some philosophers think of uh, analytic philosophy as being on think of it on the model of mathematics particularly on the model of, of uh, Russell and Whitehead's Pri Principia Mathematica which is not really a great 
model since mathematicians don't take the faintest notice of it. Um, they think that it's a kind of conceptual analysis and um, it's like it's like doing maths. It's a, it's a non-empirical, purely conceptual thing that may have physical consequences like, you know, geometry, uh, arithmetic have physical consequences, philosophy matter physical consequences. But there's a level at which um, there's, but it, 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 in itself, it's a purely conceptual kind of enterprise. Um, some philosophers think that. There are, there's a big downside to that, particularly in areas like um, the use of decision theory in, uh, in ethics, where you work out some kind of, you work out some complete, some kind of comprehensive system of ethics that, has no relation whatsoever with politics or the complex situations under which decision making takes place um, or the kind of effective states of people and the rest of it. You know, people make an effort to do those, but they're starting from a hopeless kind of premise, which is ultimately this is a conceptual exercise. You get the conceptual stuff right and then maybe you can kind of flip flash it out with a bit of politics or sociology or something like that once you've got the conceptual base. Um, whereas, you know, I'm inclined to go back to someone like Hume who thinks the best place to do moral and political philosophy is in terms of English constitutional history. Not, I don't think you do it in terms of English constitutional history, but something like that, a historical project. Um, so uh, there may be cases where Okay, so the question is, are there any consequential cases where it's true where that, okay, put it in this term, in cases where it's true that philosophy can solve problems that no one else can solve, no other discipline can solve, can solve them by itself, are these cases of any consequence or interest, or are they just kind of navel-gazing? I think that's, that's the question. And do you have any answer to that question? No, no. <laughs> No, I think, you know, in good philosophical tradition, I mean, you know, I have views, certainly, but uh, I think that you, you have to, you have to be able to formulate the arguments and look at the different cases and give a, give a proper assessment. And my views aren't sufficiently well, well developed um, for me really to, for me to be able to kind of uh, say what's right and wrong on that. And it, it's got to be so qualified that it gets um, a bit tedious because it gets buried under the qualifications, maybe. Um, but drawing attention to the problem, that's what, that's what I'm trying to do, yeah. Yes. Do you think that uh, putting science aside, there would be any alternatives to philosophy? I mean... I'm not sure if there's anything out there or if there could hypothetically be uh, some form of knowledge that's not philosophy that could tackle the, the same questions. Yeah. Okay, well, um, one thing that I looked at in the, when looking at the Enlightenment in the failures of philosophy, and I've got more general interest in it, is what happens around 1750 when there's this very general disillusionment with philosophy. Um, Hume uh, says you've got to abandon metaphysics, you've got to know when to abandon metaphysics using your common sense judgment uh, and common sense trumps. 
in France with the so-called médecin philosophe, um, they say, if you want to understand about morality and the good life and the rest of it, you've got to move into medicine. You've got to look at environmental factors, personal factors and the rest of it. You can't do it as a form of conceptual analysis or whatever, that gets you nowhere. In Germany, you get the move to literary forms, starting with Lessing. You get the idea that there's something, there's something unhealthy about being a philosopher, stuck in your room, kind of writing away with dusty books, doing conceptual stuff. And that the kind of problems or the, the interesting problems that philosophy had tried to make, had tried to take on and had made boring uh, are still interesting problems. And you pursue those through literature, mainly drama, but various art forms, um, the novel, drama, maybe epic poetry, if you're that way inclined, and then more generally through um, other art forms. And the idea is that's the way that philosophy needs to go. And interestingly, I discovered in Kant, in his very early years, that's exactly the view that he takes. He says these people pursuing metaphysics, it's a form of mental illness. They want to get out and, you know, do these other, then changes his mind. But, um, and interestingly, that's not in the English translation of the, of the big Kant things, which is a great pity because it's, um, it's a very different view. I mean, you know, he did change his mind and he changed his mind very radically. But even so, it shows kind of what was going on at the time. And I think there are subsequently... Uh, I see just today reading one of the journals that uh, Pippin's got a new book on philosophy and art forms in which he seems to kind of want a much closer relationship between literature and art and philosophy and perhaps as I understand it I've only looked at the blurb maybe these these other disciplines taking over questions that philosophy has, has taken up but hasn't um, hasn't uh, done very well. And there are cases of philosophy where philosophy takes on, I mean, just one case, finally, aesthetics. You look at human people like that, and it's all about taste. It's about standards of taste, about objectivity in taste, relativity in taste, and the rest of it. At the end of the century, no one's doing aesthetics like that. You know, the odd philosopher might be, but we don't take any notice of them. It's, it's art history. It's actually looking at particular works of art. You can't do aesthetics in the 19th century without looking at paintings, without later listening to pieces of music, without reading and analysing novels and the rest of it. What people in the 18th century are doing, they're not, they're not even using, in the main, examples of particular paintings or works of art. They're doing it at this kind of ethereal level. And aesthetics, I think, is a particularly interesting area because there you have this, this major shift. Um, it's not always recognised in the literature, uh, of the philosophical literature. You have this major shift where philosophy, a, a, a conceptual approach, is completely replaced by something really quite different, much more concrete. So that's the case where people thought, well, you know, taste, aesthetics, how on earth would you be able to do that if not through philosophy? And then the answer comes. Right. Do you think that in modern days, it's still plausible to talk about the possibility of developing a theory of everything in philosophy? No. I don't even think philosophers think that. I think to the extent to which philosophers 
think, uh, sorry, you mean a philosophical theory of everything or some mm -hmm. other? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, so philosophical, yeah. Yeah, I don't think, um, well, certainly in the Anglo tradition, which is what I know best, I don't think anyone would think that there's a philosophical theory of everything. What they would think and what seems to me most of them think uh, and get very upset if you if you deny it is that there's a scientific theory of everything and that philosophers the philosophical contribution to this is crucial and the philosophical contribution which really comes through um Hermann cohen and the neo-kantians the late 19th century the philosophical uh, um, contribution is philosophy of science and you know quine says uh, i can't remember the exact quote but he says what you know that's right philosophy of science is philosophy enough you don't need to do any other kind of philosophy it's all philosophy of science why is that well what do you do when you do philosophy of science you establish the unity of science you you show the connections but in the end what you do is you legitimate science as an activity it's not clear it needs legitimating but you 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 kind of show that it really is a theory of everything by showing how all the bits are interconnected and that so in that case uh philosophy is very much an underlaborer and it's an underlaborer to establish something that um, it believes that science alone can't do science just does you know physics life sciences the rest of it baby establishes one or two connections through mechanics or physiology or whatever but at a meta level at a conceptual level you need philosophy to show that this really is a theory of everything because everything's connected mm -hmm. and it's a disaster right uh, so uh, just one last question and i think this will be a good point to end on uh, looking at the future of philosophy, do you have any ideas about what role philosophy might play in the future in the creation of knowledge, perhaps the relationship between philosophy and science that might develop in the future and so on? This is very hard. You can't do philosophy in the modern era without um, without some connection with science. You have to have a view on what science does, I think. Uh, you have to have a developed view as to what science does and you have to have some sense, some historical sense about what philosophy has been doing and why it's been doing it and why things have changed and what the rationale uh, for doing what one is doing is um, how does work in practice I'm not sh I'm really not sure um, I don't have any sense of so what you're really asking is are, are there kind of productive areas that philosophy could go in that maybe follow on from what's being pursued at the moment um, and by the way, perhaps I would also add the question, do you think that there's any risk of philosophy becoming completely obsolete? If university administrators decided that philosophy was a, was a luxury, that what people needed to do was science, uh, it's a kind of third world model of universities, basically, that you just do the sciences. Um, if that happened, philosophy, particularly in the Anglo tradition, 
Not so much in the continental tradition. So, you know, in France, there's teaching the philosophy in schools and the rest of it. But in the Anglo tradition, where philosophy is something done in universities and not really anywhere else, if, if universities had cut back on the humanities and decided that, well, philosophy should go, but, you know, literature and things are kind of maybe important, but philosophy should go in the way that religion should go, then I think philosophy would be doomed. Anglo philosophy anyway. I mean, it would, that's to say, it would have to completely reconvene itself. It would not be able to, I don't think it would, it would not be able to um, argue that it was a fruitful, legitimate enterprise in its own right. It might be, you know, you can imagine what philosophers would say. Well, you know, they've got these connections with linguistics and uh, mathematics and the rest of it. So then, you know, you bring on a few mathematicians and, linguist and linguists and they say, no, 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 we're not interested in what philosophers say about these things. Um, I think philosophy would be in dire straits without, the, without a um, place in the university education. Having said that, I think universities would be in dire straits without having philosophy as part of their education. Um, but, you know, one, you know, we've had some very, very radical political and cultural changes in the last 20 years, and one can't kind of rule these things out, you know. Um, so I would say that it's philosophers are living dangerously, perhaps, and um, some recognition of that might be might be salutary. Okay, so uh, the book is again The Failures of Philosophy, a historical essay. Dr. Gal Kroger, just before we go, are there any places on the internet where people can find your work? Legal places. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, there are reviews, I suppose, that one can find on the internet. Um, I don't do blogs uh, and I don't do social media. Um, so not in that respect. So in the main, no, not compared to many philosophers who do lots of blogs and, and social media, which, you know, some people listening will say, well, maybe that's what he should be doing, given all these complaints about the irrelevance of philosophy. So you know, who, who's to say? Yeah, okay, so anyway, I will be leaving a link to your book in the description box of the interview. And thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Ricardo, and thanks for such thoughtful questions. It's great. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please do not forget to support the channel. You can go over to Patreon at patreon.com slash and you also have links to PayPal in the description box of the interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, leave a comment and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters. Karen Litzke and Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Fordens, Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, 
Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bernardo Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Forrest Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintius, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Ethan Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Pak, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, G Gary G. Elman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, My Producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafini, Akian Gilligan, Sérgio Quadriano, Luís Caetano, Tom Van Agdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardis France, and Nirvan Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.